Good morning. To those joining us online and home, welcome. We're glad you're joining us today. I believe the last time I shared with you all, uh, it was outside. It was like 100 degrees. Uh, I was dying up there, uh, just sweating it out. So I am, I am thankful for the air conditioning and, and the inside. Uh, if I'm being honest, I'm a little bit chilly today, so I'll take that over uh, the other option. Uh, but over the last six weeks, we've been discussing a series on the Apostle Paul. Uh, if there's a character in the New Testament that I find most fascinating beyond Jesus Christ, it would be the Apostle Paul. His life story, his ministry is something that you could just pour over for years and not get all of the content. But we've tried over the last six weeks to talk about Paul's life in a, in a number of different contexts and different lenses. Uh, we started with his background, his conversion, his formation, uh, those years where we don't know much happened to him. From there, we talked about his commission to proclaim the, the gospel message and the missionary journeys that he took. Finally, last week, Mike shared with us that Paul was a man who was willing to stand up for the gospel. To the point where he stood up against Peter when something was going sideways. But today, as we begin to wrap up this series, uh, we want to talk about Paul as a writer. Paul as a theologian. If you look at what we call the New Testament, Paul has written or is attributed to writing 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Those were written over roughly an 18-year period. But if you were to take what we call the New Testament, that's half of the New Testament is something that Paul is attributed to have writing. Now I'm glad this is the 11 o'clock service. We're going to start in Romans. We're going to finish in Philemon. And we're going to be here as long as it takes. So I'm glad you came to this service. So welcome. In all seriousness, countless Bible studies, sermons have been poured over to discuss the letters of Paul. That's half of the things that we study. And they're all labeled Paul's letters. I think it's hard for us in 2020 to... Um, to think about Paul writing letters. In 2020, we can write an email, 50 emails, which is essentially an electronic letter within an hour. It's not like the days even 20 years ago. And if anybody who's over 20 remembers the age of writing letters, letter writing was a thing, and it was exciting. When I was a kid, I, I attended Malaga camp and the youth camps, it's where, it's where I came to know Jesus Christ. And, and during our weeks of camp, you would develop these relationships with your counselors, with fellow campers. Uh, and I remember this one particular year of camp, it was in the mid-90s, and I got home and the first thing I wanted to do was grab a piece of paper and a pen and mail a letter to one of the counselors. I wanted to just say how great the week was, to talk about my experiences, how they touched my life. So you write your letter out, you send it in the mail. One, two weeks later, maybe if you're lucky, they wrote you back. And you were just so excited to receive a letter in return. I think it's hard for us today, and even at that moment in my life, it's hard to think about 50 AD when Paul is writing these letters to what that was like for him. Letter writing 
in the age of the New Testament was a costly endeavor. There wasn't paper or pen as we know it. Paper had to be made with every letter by pounding reeds together. If you've ever been to Walt Disney World and you've ridden Spaceship Earth, just about the point where you're talking about thanking the Phoenicians, there's a little guy on the edge, a little animatronic, you know, uh, pounding away. He's making paper for a letter. Ink was a mixture of coal and, and water to make some form of something that we could write on. Pens didn't exist. They were just reeds that were sharpened. For an example of, of the style of life that they were living, this is from Cicero. For this letter, I shall use a good pen, a well-mixed ink, and ivory polished paper too. For you write that you could hardly read my last letter, because it is always my practice to use whatever pen I find in my hand as if it were a good one. There were good and bad pens. They say that you could barely read his last letter, because it's not like something that we do every day. The fact that 13 of Paul's letters have made it to us today is a miracle in itself. To make matters worse, they would make two copies of the letter. And it's not like they could write one, take it down to the store, and someone would copy it for them in a matter of minutes. They had to write a whole second letter, pound out reads to make more paper, and write a second letter. One letter went to the recipients. The second letter was the person who wrote the letter. Today we can pull out our phones and read all 13 of Paul's letters within minutes. Only that came into effect 1,400 years later. In 1455, a young man named Johannes Gutenberg developed the moving type printing press. In 1455, the first Bible that we know was printed. Okay? 1,400 years after the writings of Paul, we have it collected together. Letter writing was a chore, and it was a poor substitute for face-to-face -face interaction. Paul lived in an era that was an oral culture. They talked to each other. They interacted with each other. He sought people out. And even if you could write the letter, trying to find someone who could read the letter was difficult in itself. Literacy wasn't high back then. It was for the educated only. So in order to save time, money, and effort, the typical length of a letter was very, very short. We have an example of a letter uh, written in 50 AD. It reads this. Greetings. I have sent you my blasts to get forked sticks for my olive gardens. See that he does not loiter, for I know you know I need him every hour. Farewell. That was a typical letter. The length of that letter was a typical letter. So by any standard, Paul is long-winded. And that's okay. But in order for Paul to send these messages, and for, in order for Paul to get them to be conveyed the way he wanted to, and to be understood by people he wanted to, Paul generally sent someone with his letter to explain it, to read it out loud. In Ephesians, it says, Tychicus will tell you everything. In Colossians, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. In Titus, as soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you. In Philemon, I am sending him, Onesimus, back to you. Paul sent someone with his letter 
because there was probably something more to be said on top of the letter to make sure that the mind of Paul is being expressed. What I find interesting is that Paul wrote these letters to believers, not to unbelievers. He saved his in-person preaching for unbelievers to preach the gospel to them, but this went to believers, usually to warn or correct some kind of behavior. You see, each letter of Paul was written in the context of the person who was trying to receive it. They were written to the situation of that time. And within the letters, collectively, if you were to put them all together, you would reveal the mind of Paul. You would see a theology that is developed throughout his ministry. But what is Paul's theology? And it's here that we turn to the scripture. Beginning in Romans chapter 15. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty to proclaim the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have proclaimed the gospel of Christ. I have always been, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. So what was Paul's theology? To answer that, we first have to answer what is theology. Theology is the study of the nature of God. For Paul, it was no longer about who God is, but what God has done, is doing, and will do. His Damascus Road experience shaped the theology for the rest of his life. Everything stemmed from that encounter. As we read the letters of Paul, his writings reflect an encounter with the living Christ. As for Paul's theology, it underwent a new development from the time of his conversion. His Damascus Road experience didn't cause him to forget everything that he knew. Paul was a Pharisee. He was well educated. He grew up in in the synagogue. When he came to meet Jesus Christ, he didn't forget all of that. But he used his Jewish heritage modified from an understanding with an encounter with Jesus Christ. John Wesley, the uh, father of Methodism, preached the gospel most of his life. From Oxford to here in Georgia to field preaching throughout Europe. But it was in 1738 at a place called Aldersgate. It's about a third of the way through John Wesley's ministry. He writes that he felt a strange warming in his heart. He came to a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. 
And moving forward from that event shaped his theology. He didn't forget everything that he taught for 15 years, 20 years. He didn't forget Jesus Christ. He didn't forget God. But he used it and incorporated it into his ministry, into his theology, from a point knowing and encountering the Holy Spirit. His message and his personal theology were shaped by an event. It was that encounter with the Holy Spirit that shaped everything. So what is Paul's theology? What was Paul's theology? Paul's theology was a theology of salvation. You know, it's hard to nail down any systematic pattern through the 13 letters of Paul because he wrote them to specific people for specific reasons. But there's one topic, there's one consistent topic that Paul wrote about, and that was salvation. It's the single most message that he, he wrote and that he preached. But why? Because first he encountered Christ. He experienced it first. Before Paul ever wrote a letter, he came into a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. This is where Paul's autobiography and his theology just collide together. Paul felt so strongly on this message that he had to proclaim Jesus Christ. And for the rest of his life, through every letter, this is the one consistent thing he wrote. Listen to Paul's own words in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. For Paul, from his conversion on, there was one way to eternal life. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes this to the church of Ephesus. And don't miss... Don't miss this verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. You see, there's nothing we can do. It is a free gift of God. There's no other way except through faith in the resurrected being of Jesus Christ. It is through faith that we are justified. Another word for justified is redeemed. For those who are in Christ, you are redeemed people. John Wesley puts it this way in his sermon, Justification by Faith. Justifying faith implies not only a divine evidence or conviction that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, but a sure Trust and confidence that Christ died for my sins, that he loved me, and he gave himself for me. In a time before John Wesley, in the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation took over Europe. The, the newly formed Protestants came to believe something called the five solas. Sola is Latin for alone. And those five solas are this. Sola Fida, Sola Gratia, Sola Scriptura, 
Soli Deo Gloria, and Solus Christus. This one right here, the very bottom, Solus Christus, in Christ alone. That is the heart of Paul's theology. If you were to put those together in a sentence, salvation comes through faith alone, by grace alone, understood through Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, in Christ alone. This is what Paul spent most of his time on, in Christ alone. That's Paul's theology. But out of that theology of salvation, I believe there's three, three main elements that we can, we can pull out and develop as believers who are saved by grace through faith. The first is community. Paul's chief desire was to be in community with other believers. Throughout his writings, you can see how deeply he cared about the people he is writing to. In Romans, Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 1 Corinthians, I always thank my God for you. Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul believed that the people who are redeemed are called to be one body in Christ. And we are all meant to just work together. As Christians, we are called to build into the lives of other believers. To grow together, to work together, to live in community together. Paul writes it this way, there is one body, but it has many parts. But all its many parts make up one body. It is the same with Christ. We are all baptized by one Holy Spirit. And so we are formed into one body. It didn't matter whether we were Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free people. We were all given the same spirit to drink. So the body is not just made up of one part. It has many parts. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you has a part in it. As I said, I attended youth camps at Malaga camp. A number of years ago, we were able to move onto the campground. Uh, it's a full year-round Christian community. It's just a, a body of believers living together in a small little community. It doesn't mean, and I promise you this, it doesn't mean that our fellow believers are not going to frustrate us. That there are not going to be things that irk us. But we are called to live in community and communion with one another. Paul wrote in, in our passage this morning, my brothers and sisters, to consider fellow believers as brothers and sisters. And if I were to go home today, the people I've come to know and live close to, I consider my brothers and sisters. We're called to live in community with one another. We are many parts, but one body. Beyond a call to community, Paul believed that those who call themselves Christians are called to serve. To serve Christ. To serve the church. To serve the community. Paul's theology to serve the risen Christ and by extension the body of believers in the world. See, not only did he care for his fellow Christians, he used his writings to call people to action. 
In Galatians 5, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. In Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It seems like every, every time I'm up here to share with you all, it comes back to the idea of service. I've become the service guy. But the reality is I'm okay with that. Because if there's a topic that I'm most passionate about within the body of believers, is that we are called to serve one another. I find it at Malaga. If somebody needs some help, the community comes up to help them. If I could help everyone on the campground, I would. Service to the church and to our community is what we are called as believers to do. But building the community and serving Jesus, they don't take saving faith far enough for Paul. What rounds out Paul's theology is a call to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. It's the proclamation of the gospel. Paul believed his personal mission and calling was to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world. He traveled over 10,000 miles and three missionary journeys just to do that. He believed this so deeply that if word got back to him that something was wrong, he would address it. He would write a letter to that church to address the problem. If he couldn't personally go there, he would stand up for the gospel any way he could. Letter writing was too expensive for Paul to just be flippant. What he was writing had to mean something. It had to be important. And there is nothing more important to Paul than proclaiming Jesus Christ. In Colossians, Paul writes, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. In 2 Corinthians 4, he writes, For we, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The end of Paul's life was spent in prison. He was on his way to Rome to stand trial. And within that time period of his imprisonment, he wrote four letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. You see, prison didn't stop Paul from proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. In fact, Philippians is considered Paul's happiest letter. It's full of joy and contentment. Colossians, as you just heard, he is the one we proclaim. Jesus spent his imprisonment proclaiming Jesus Christ. It was that important. But Paul wrote out of necessity. It was not an easy task. It was costly. It was time-consuming. But for Paul, there was nothing more important than those who received his letters know Jesus Christ personally 
when Paul saw a need for correction or encouragement, he wrote about it. He addressed it. Through his theology of salvation in Jesus Christ and from his letters, Paul wanted his fellow Christians to be in community with one another, to serve one another, to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world. Our challenge today is a simple one. All I want you to do is examine your life. Today, 2020, in the midst of the longest two-week quarantine known to man, examine where you are today. Through the lens of your life, are you building in the community around you? Are you living in communion with other believers? Are you serving the kingdom to the best of your ability? Are you doing your part as the one of many? And does your life, do your words, do your actions proclaim the name of Jesus Christ? And lastly, I say this not because it's the bottom of the list, but because this one is most important. And if you've forgotten everything that I've said up until this point, catch this moment right here. Have you come to or have you had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ? Have you let that shape the theology of your life? Without that crucial step, the other three things don't matter too much. Everything hinges on a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are at home. But if there's one thing I could speak to, it's my own personal experience. This last year of my life, with work, with a pandemic that's shutting my business down, with seminary and all the things going on, evaluating my day-to-day life has become part of it. I found you get stale after a while. You're just going through the motions and the routine, trying to understand what's happening. So then I rephrased the question, Do you need to re-encounter Jesus Christ? My question would be, why not? If you don't know the answer to that one, why not today? To re-encounter the living Christ. I'm going to invite the band up for a song. The altar here is open. There's an online host to talk to you if you want to discuss. I'll be here to pray with you. The theology of Paul was simple. By faith alone, through grace alone. To the glory of God alone, in Christ alone. The rock on which we stand as people. I implore you not to let this moment pass. God, we thank you for today.
We thank you for your gospel message. We thank you that Paul wrote about it, developed a theology around it, and that we are able to read it today. Lord, that we would be a people who live in community, who serve, and who proclaim your name above all other names. Lord, let your spirit move this morning. It's in your name. Amen.